Hello and welcome to the second episode of The Why Behind the What. My name is Nathan Albert. Again, I'm glad you are here. In this episode, I want to give you a scriptural example of the why behind the what. I had this thought uh, at the gym while I was on the treadmill the other day that there's a perfect illustration of the importance of the why behind the what in a letter uh, from the New Testament. So I want us to look at the letter of Colossians, not simply the letter itself, but the structure and the layout of the letter. And I want to talk through how the first part of Colossians, Colossians 1 and 2, is the catalyst for Colossians 3 and 4. Uh, For the grammatical lovers out there, uh, we're going to talk about how indicatives influence imperatives, which is the why behind the what. A couple updates before we get things going. Thanks to all of you who have listened to the first episode. It was way more than eight. It's awesome. And do you know when you start a podcast that people at Apple out in California listen to your podcast before they approve it? How about that, huh? Uh, If you could, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Click that little button that says subscribe. Simple. Uh, If you want to write a review or uh, rate it, that would be awesome. Share it on social media. The more uh, people that subscribe, the easier it is for people to find it, and the more that iTunes actually will promote uh, the podcast. Also, an update on my book. Uh, Just earlier this week, my publisher sent me the proof of their book from Read the Spirit Book, uh, Embracing Love, My Journey to Hugging a Man in His Underwear. It looks so good. Uh, so we are literally uh, only a couple weeks away from it being being available for purchase. So stay tuned. You can find out more at NathanAlbert.com or on social media and stuff. So today's topic, Colossians 1 and 2 versus Colossians 3 and 4, the indicatives and the imperatives. Now, when I was working as an actor and singer, part of my job was memorization, right? And I, I talked a little bit about this last episode, uh, but my job was to take written word, uh, black ink on a page, and I'd read it over and over and over again. And then as performers, we would bring this written word to life. We would emote it. Uh, and so at one point I thought, well, if I can memorize a script quite easily, uh, how can I memorize scripture? Like, would, would that work well? At about the same time, I was challenged by a pastor who was challenging his entire church to memorize the entire book of Colossians. And so uh, I took this challenge and I printed out the letter on a sheet of paper, laminated it, uh, and then went to work. One verse a day, I would memorize. Uh, So I'd spend all day trying to just memorize one verse. Uh, Day two, memorize verse one and verse two, so on and so on. And uh, so a lot of repetition later, I had the entire book of Colossians memorized. Memorizing Colossians isn't the most impressive thing though. So don't think it's a big deal, especially uh, when in Judaism and Islam, uh, the memorization of the entire scriptures is really valued, like the whole thing, not just a letter. So one of the most powerful things to me in memorizing Colossians, which I now see in so many other letters in the New Testament of the Bible, is its structure. So let me explain. Uh, Colossians is a short book. I mean, it's four chapters long, 96 verses, takes like 12 to 14 minutes to recite it from memory, depending on how much coffee I've had. Uh, you can read it in no, sit, in no time in one sitting. Paul is writing to encourage the Christians in Colossae and to remind them of the gospel, the good news, uh, reminding them who Jesus is and what Jesus had done. So here are, that, here are a handful of things Paul says. Uh, he says uh, things like he wants to remind the Colossians of the word made flesh and the words of Christ. He tells them that Christ is the key to understanding reality. Boom, think on that one. That Christ is the key to understanding reality. He says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. So, if you want to know what God looks like, look to Jesus. Boom, think on that one too. Uh, That Christ, uh, that in Christ all things hold together. 
Think on that. So without Christ, everything falls apart. You can say it with me. Boom. Think on that one. That Christ is a mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations. He talks about how salvation is this free gift from God, the the one who uh, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. That Christ has taken our sin, he nailed it to the cross, that we were alienated from God, we were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior, but now we are holy in God's sight without blemish and free from accusation. So Paul lays out the whole gospel, that we don't have to earn our acceptance from God uh, or, or make ourselves presentable before God. Instead, God accepts us as we are. The good news that Paul is writing about is not that we have to do all these things in order to be in relationship with God, but rather what God has done for us to be in relationship with God. Paul then goes on to describe uh, even more than that, that he goes on to describe how God is restoring all of creation, that he's making all things right, that he's going to make everything good again. Now, here's what's cool. Paul does all of this in just over one chapter, 30 verses. I mean, these 30 verses, basically Colossians 1 and 2, are all indicatives. They're all statements of faith. There's not a single, uh, statements of fact, sorry. There's not a single command or imperative. And this is true of other books like Ephesians and some other letters, that not a single command is in the first part of the letter. So chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians are the indicative. Uh, they tell us who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, all the things that were mentioned uh, just a few seconds ago. Yet chapters 3 and 4 then present uh, kind of the imperatives or commands or how to live as a follower of Jesus. It's our response to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So chapter 1 and 2 of Colossians presents the good news, the gospel. Chapters 3 and 4 of Colossians are to be our response to the good news or the gospel. So we have to know chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians in order to live Colossians 3 and 4. We have to know the indicatives so we might live out the imperatives. Now for the longest time, I didn't realize this. And I think there's an epidemic in Christian circles, in churches, uh, that don't know this either. And what we do is we flip-flop it all the time. We try to do the what without knowing the why. But we try to live chapters 3 and 4 of Colossians without knowing the 1 and 2 of Colossians. We try to live the imperatives before knowing and understanding the indicatives. So many preachers and pastors and churches reverse this. The imperatives dictate the indicatives. We are judged by how well we live the imperatives. Our inclusion into a church community is based off of how good we are at living out the imperatives. They demand we live the imperatives without telling us the indicatives. Uh, Sermons are full of commands and imperatives, strict, strict rules on how we should be living. They're full of exhortations instead of invitations. And so... What we try to do then is we try to live by these rules and these commands without knowing the indicatives. Uh, Maybe you've you've heard a pastor or a religious leader, uh, and you might ask them, "Well, why do we why do we keep this command? Why do we why do we have to live in this way?" And their response is, "Well, that's what God commands. It's it's what's in the Bible." Ah, this is missing the point. It's so much more beautiful than simplistic answers, and yet it's quite simple because it's the beauty found in the indicatives. Now, chapter three. I mean, it's got some good stuff in there, good imperatives. It says things like clothe yourself with compassion, put to death immorality and impurity, set your minds on things above, don't lie, Uh, bear with one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, put on love, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I mean, this stuff preaches. I mean, 
It's fuel for a motivating sermon. It makes sense. It's easy to understand. I mean, there, there, there's, there's no wonder it makes like a fiery sermon, you know? You can tell all sorts of stories that will impact people based off of these imperatives. And I've heard numerous sermons that preach the imperatives more than they preach the indicatives. Do this. Live like this. You're not living like this, so do that less and do this more. Do you know what I'm talking about? You've heard a sermon and you leave thinking, whoa, I got a lot of work to do, or wow, I I don't pray enough. I need to pray more. Yeah, I definitely don't read the Bible. I need to do that more. I I need to lie less, and I need to do this more, and I need to make sure I'm I'm, I'm living this out. Or uh, maybe you leave thinking, wow, I am the most unholy, unworthy, unacceptable, sinful person ever. I mean, how how many of you have heard sermons where you're reminded that you are an awful sinner? It has been pounded over my head that I'm a sinner. I mean, countless sermons have told me I'm awful. Christians have become really good at telling people they're uh, sinners, and Christians have become really good at telling non-Christians they're sinners. Am I right? And so we're told like we're unholy before God, and God hates our sin, and uh, that we're filthy rags, and uh, and this is because we're not living out God's rules and commands, and we're failing at them, and we don't live the imperatives per- perfectly, and and so we're sinners. But here's the thing, when I'm told over and over and over and over and over again that I'm a sinner, eventually I start believing it. And once I start believing it, I'll actually start living like it. So so I'll think, oh, well, ah, you know what? I'm a sinner. Odds are I'm going to keep sinning. Uh, It's who I am. It's like ingrained in me. I'm, I'm just a sinner. Oh, well, I mean, like, I don't really need to try this hard. I mean, God forgives me of my sin, and odds are I'm going to sin tomorrow, so... What's the point of really making a change in my life? And that imperative just seems impossible, so I'm not going to live it out. Or we look at other people and we think, well, they're sinners. I mean, they are they are not good people, and we probably shouldn't talk to them, and uh, we probably shouldn't associate with them because they are not not good people. And then we exclude them, or we kick them out, or we aren't friends with them. There are numerous uses of the word sinner, and it's plural in the New Testament. Uh, over 40 times. Yeah, check this out. None refer to people who have come to a saving faith in Jesus. Never is a person who believes in Jesus Christ called a sinner. A Christian is never labeled a sinner in the Bible. Let that sink in because probably most of the sermons you've heard have told you something completely different. Colossians 1 tells us that we are holy in God's sight without blemish and free from accusation. Because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus has done, our identity has changed from sinner to saint. And that's the indicative. We are no longer saints. Uh, we are Sorry, we are no longer sinners. We are saints. We are saints then who happen to sin once in a while. And this is why knowing the indicatives are so, so important. Because when I understand that I'm not a sinner, but instead, I'm a saint who happens to sin once in a while, I will, and I actually start believing that, I will actually then want to live like a saint. I will choose to live more like a saint than a sinner. I'll wage war against the things in my life that have no, that, uh, that have no place for sin. I'll, I'll, um, I'll make sure there's only room for Jesus. I'll, I'll passionately do my best to live out the imperatives because I know that I'm no longer a sinner but a saint. And so, yes, we still sin, but being a sinner is not our main identity. It's not the main indicative. The indicative now is we are saints in God's eye. We are holy in God's sight. And this isn't something we try to achieve. It's something that we are. It's something that is bestowed upon us. 
And so when we understand the indicatives, the statement of facts, it changes how we live and it gives us the catalyst and the power and the energy and the excitement to live out the imperatives. There's a story in the New Testament uh, uh, where the rabbi Jesus was interacting with a bunch of religious leaders, and the religious leaders had brought this woman to him who was caught in the act of adultery. I mean, just that right there, I mean, think upon that. That is crazy. And the religious leaders wanted to stone this woman. It was the custom of the day. But Jesus tells them all, uh, he basically says, well, if you, those of you without sin, you you know, you can be the first one to, to stone this woman and put her to death. And so eventually the religious men all leave, uh, and it's just Jesus and this woman. Jesus quite literally saves this woman's life. And then Jesus says to this woman, now leave your life of sin. Now, I've heard a lot of people preach on that imperative in Jesus' phrase. Leave your life of sin. They say it about the LGBTQ community. Uh, It's an imperative that preaches. It's a reminder that we need to leave our life of sin. But check out what comes before that imperative. And indicative. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. Now, just as a side comment, this woman probably didn't leave her life of sin. I mean, I think sometimes we sugarcoat it and we think, Jesus said, Leave your life of sin. And she goes off and she has this incredible encounter with Jesus and she never sins again. Come on, that's not realistic. Most likely she did keep sinning. But what kept her going? What changed her life? Neither do I condemn you. The indicative. I was just recently reminded this morning, actually, of a verse from 2 Samuel uh, 14, 14, that says, God devises a way so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. Isn't that so good? So this is what Jesus, I think, is doing in this text. He's, those who are banished, he's saying, oh no, they will no longer remain banished from me. After I memorized Colossians, I went back through my Bible to see what I had underlined, because I'm an underliner, Uh, and and most of what I had underlined were imperatives. They were the Colossians 3 and 4. I mean, from the Gospels to the book of James to Revelation, all throughout the Bible, I highlighted all the commands, all the rules I had to follow. And basically what I was doing by uh, doing this is I was making myself a really, really, really long and impossible to-do list. What I didn't have underlined in my Bible, the indicatives. And then I started to notice something else. When I would read the Bible, I'd often turn to my favorite chapters, like Colossians 3 and 4, which were lists of things to live. And I'd skip over Colossians 1 and 2. I'd skip over the indicatives because it says some weird things, like Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, uh, rescued us from a dominion of darkness. Like, what does that even mean? But reading the imperatives, uh, it actually then just cheapens the Bible. It it cheapens it. it. It makes it a long list instead of a beautiful mystery that is the indicatives. So it's so much easier to preach and memorize and to know the imperatives and to know the commands and to know the rules. And in some ways, it's our default setting. And if you think about it, our culture functions in this way. You follow the rules and you will excel in life. You will be rewarded. This is how our education system works. This is how employment uh, and raises work sometimes. This is how our parenting philosophies work. It is you do the list You get rewarded when you do it well. And so it's no wonder that this has crept into our religion, into our faith, and into our Christian practices. Now, here's the problem, though, if we try to live out the imperatives without knowing the indicatives. First off, it it isn't the good news. It isn't gospel. It's conditional. And that is not the message of Christianity. When we simply follow commands, the good news doesn't seem that good. 
I mean, what's so good about following hundreds and hundreds of commands that seem impossible to actually achieve? It's like a long to-do list that we have to do, and it's something we have to do rather than something we get to do. Also, it can have dangerous consequences. If we follow the imperatives without knowing the indicatives, we will become religious, self-righteous. We can think that we are better than others because we're following the rules and they're not. Uh, We'll even think that God might owe us because we are living commands perfectly. We'll be able to live them uh, for a few days. But then it'll get impossible. And we will at some point give up entirely upon God because we can't attain that perfection. We can't complete the to-do list. The commands are just too hard to live out every day. So let me give you an example from Scripture. Uh, Scripture says things like, uh, we need to be holy like God is holy. That's the command. That's the imperative. And so let's say you start doing your best to live a holy life, whatever that might mean. Um, Because the Bible says you have to be holy, you are going to do it. And you're not influenced by indicatives. You're just trying to live out the command. Here's what happens. At some point, you're going to become self-righteous because you're proud that you're actually doing it. At some point, you're going to look at others who are less holy than you, and you're going to think, oh, they are less than human. They, They aren't as good as me. So you puff yourself up, and you dehumanize or you exclude others. And you'll look down on them because they aren't as holy as you. And you'll puff yourself up because you are more holy than others. And then uh, when your life is, um, when life is tough for them, for example, you'll equate that to their lack of holiness. And eventually you'll just end that relationship with unholy people. You, you can't associate with them. You constantly compare yourself to others, uh, but uh, you won't associate with them. Another thing that will happen is you'll think God owes you for your holy living. You'll assume that God is going to bless you and make things perfect for you because you're following all his commands so well. And then something goes wrong in your life. You get a disease. Uh, There's a death. Uh, It's as if all of a sudden there's been a wrench that is thrown into your life and you blame God. God, why is this happening to me? You owe me. Have you seen how I've been living my life? I mean, I'm following all your commands. Why isn't it going the way I want? Another thing that might happen you'll get to the point where following all of God's commands or being holy is actually really, really hard. Like, it might even be impossible. And you do it for a day, and then you think, oh man, the next day happens and you realize you're far from holy. Or the rules you follow, they ebb and flow, and there's good days and bad days. And then it just might not be, it might not be worth it. And so eventually, you just, you know you can't do it. It's too hard. So maybe you just give up on this whole God thing entirely. Do you know any people like this? Are you people like this? When we follow the imperatives without knowing the indicatives, Christianity becomes one long and impossible to-do list. And this isn't what this faith is about. Now, here's another thing. We can't live a holy life on our own. Like, actually, we don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. I need help. I don't have what it takes to live out these imperatives, even in Colossians 3 and 4. I mean, I can't do it. It's hard. And what Paul gets at in his letter in Colossians 1 and 2 is that there is one who is holy. There is one who has perfectly lived out the imperatives. And this holy one has made us the unholy ones holy. And this perfect one has made us the imperfect ones perfect. And the Holy One is the source and the force and the power and the love and the catalyst for us to live a life to the fullest. 
and through the power of this Holy One who lives in us and through us, this life for us, we now have the power to pursue the imperatives as we continue to live out our faith. This is what I find such good news about Christianity, that God makes us what God teaches us we should be. So the imperatives are our response to the indicatives, our response to the good news. So here's a challenge for the week. If you're a reader or a student of the Bible, plop yourself down in Colossians 1 and 2 or Ephesians 1 through 3 or Philippians, for instance, and study the indicatives. Let them sink into your soul, marinate on them, meditate upon them. Let them inhabit your mind and your soul and then see if it changes how you live out the imperatives. My guess is it will. So, Here's to the ancient letter of Colossians. Here's to the fact that we are no longer sinners, but saints who happen to sin once in a while. Here's to the indicatives that compel us to live out the imperatives. And here's to the why behind the what. Cheers. Cheers.